Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Before we start the show, I want to let you know something. My latest novel, Personal Fable, is free for the next uh, few days. So if you're hearing this ad, it's currently free if you're a Kindle user. So just look it up on your Kindle. If you don't have a Kindle, you can even get one of those for free by getting the free Kindle app on your phone. And then head over, get Personal Fable, have a read, and if you love it, leave a review. And I hope you love the story. Now, let's get on with the podcast. P.S. The promotion runs the 11th, 12th and 13th of March. Welcome back to the Hemingway List takeover of A Year of War and Peace. Talking about Chapter 2. Then I'll be reading the Lewis version of Chapter 3. The Aussie translation. Because uh, people seem to be loving it. Which is... Uh, Obviously, music to my ears as the creator. Um, Just a reminder that I am doing a daily hangout um, via live stream while I'm translating every day. I spend a couple of days translating War and Peace into Aussie. Um, So I figured I'd open up the door for you guys to hang out. So you can um, find the link for that in the daily discussions, the War and Peace daily hangout. Uh, Also a reminder that there is a Patreon for the work that I do on the podcasting uh, and with the Hemingway list and all that. So if you want to support the efforts that I make, you can donate as much as you sort of want to, whatever the value you feel matches what you're getting out of this whole experience, uh, over at patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. Patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. Um, much appreciated um, to those people who help push the podcast along and help me keep doing it all right i'm loving this war and peace themed year i'm doing a big podcast every night i'm doing a couple of hours of translating i just feel like it's the theme of my whole year is this book and um so far so good i'm having a great time big thanks to those who came and hung out in the live stream pre chistensky had this to say about chapter two. Oh, wait, wait before i say that i'll read what the discussion prompts were Here comes Pierre, one to watch. We have a few more chapters of soiree fun. How do you think it will play out? And why is Anna so nervous about Pierre? Prechistensky said, I love Pierre's entrance. It's so amusing seeing how much he unsettles Anna Pavlovna just by being himself and being oblivious to the Russian aristocracy's social norms. I laughed at Pierre being described as the young man who did not know how to live. It's so much more striking than the Maud translation where Pierre simply did not know how to behave. Um, saying his awkwardness and unpretentiousness equals not knowing how to live just emphasizes how central the performative nature of high society is to their way of life. Um, <clears throat> Guinardo says, oh, I love that, that. Briggs describes him as a young man who had no idea how to conduct himself, which is also not quite as serious as not knowing how to live. um yeah he's just he's oblivious isn't he and but the thing is he does have a claim to sort of be in that society even though he's you know he's an illegitimate child and all the rest but um yeah he just doesn't fit in there and that's a great way to introduce him Grey Boff said, I love seeing the little differences between translations like this. Yeah, me too. It's one of my favorite things about this subreddit or this project is uh, comparing the different translations. Um, 
Dagen Fish said, I feel like this line really sums up Pierre. Looking at the self-assured and elegant expression on the faces gathered there, he kept expecting something especially intelligent. None of the important characters we meet in this chapter are particularly intellectual, nor are they necessarily more intelligent than Pierre, but the other guests project easy self-confidence that dazzles Pierre, and so he assumes they have some worthwhile ideas to impart. I really hope he realises that none of the fashionable people he meets have discovered any more of the secrets of how to be happy and live a good life than he has. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary of, of Pierre. Intelligent, but sort of naive. Year of WAP. Oh, that's a straight up Year of War and Peace username. Looks like you've signed up just to do this project, so good on you. All the guests, um, says Year of WAP, went through the motions of greeting this aunt. Oh yeah, the aunt. <laughs> I laughed this, uh, at Pierre's faux pas and really enjoyed the humour in Tolstoy describing the dynamics of these social functions and how everyone is expected to behave. The reader doesn't need to know everything about 19th century high society in Russia to be able to relate to the situation which helps me make the setting and book more accessible so far. I thought the analogy relating to Anna's hosting duties to those of the mill foreman cleverly shows how she's the social mastermind. Anna Pavlovna welcomed him with the kind of bow she reserved for the lowest persons in the hierarchy of her drawing room. In one sentence, Tolstoy is able to provide important background information on socials, Pierre's social status, as well as further insight into Anna's character. Yeah, it's a really good way to introduce both of them. It's a, it's a good little writer's hack is to have one character's opinion of another and then in doing that you get a little window into how uh, who both of those characters are by having one describe another or one react to another k lamarie 92 said i forgot two of my favorite characters were introduced here lisa is one of the sweetest most serene characters i can think of yeah yeah she's awesome lisa is really sweet uh even shallow old vasily is charmed by her i also Love how she's described as perfectly lovely and how she's so pretty that her defects only make her more cute. I'm just saying I'm not what you would call conventionally attractive woman and I got called Chewbacca in high school when I had a little mustache. Double standards are a bitch. <laughs> Jeez, that's rough. Um, and then here comes Pierre. Bless him. I love him so much. He's so fresh and shiny here in the beginning. <clears throat> yeah, Pierre's the best. Zukov 17's here with his uh, comparison of uh, between what's this one two three four five six different versions, and the line we're comparing is, and having got rid of this young man who did not know how to behave, she resumed her duties as hostess. Briggs, detaching herself from this young man who had no idea how to conduct himself, she resumed her duties as hostess. Garnet, and getting rid of this unmannerly young man, she returned to her duties. That's crap. <laughs> That's crap. That's and and getting rid of this unmannerly young man. Unmannerly. Jeez. That's hacky. Uh, Edmund said, and having freed herself from the young man who did not know how to behave, she resumed her duties as mistress of the house. Dunnigan said, and having got rid of this young man who did not know how to behave, she returned to her duties as hostess. P and V, and ridding herself of the young man who did not know how to live. She returned to her duties as mistress of the house. So P&V's got the most authentic one there by um, sticking with the the most severe version of saying he didn't know how to live. In Russian, it's literally how to live, says Cortio. 
Andre Bokonski 69 says, not even sure how you could translate it differently without losing the meaning. I love the comparisons when we can get someone who knows um, the Russian, so we can go right to the source. Dana Udu says, Tolstoy does a nice trick of placing everyone in Anna Pavlovna's salon the same category from the start. People differing widely in age and character, but alike in the social circle in which they belong, and then introducing Pierre as completely alien Excuse me, to that group. <clears throat> yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's well done. Just let this kind of clumsy fellow wander in and he sticks out like a sore thumb. And you immediately sort of side with him, don't you? Because even though he's a dope, you kind of... Um, well, I guess we all feel a little bit lost in this setting, you know. Um, we're a bit of a fish out of water when we're at Anna Pavlovna's soiree. And so we we kind of get to experience that via Pierre. He can be the vessel for, through which we can see the party. Cover the Tuber says, read it and reread it. One, so I could concentrate on the names and remember them. One thing that struck me is how Anna describes the geopolitical situation as though the countries were members of the aristocracy. The countries are represented as being sort of an embodiment of their leaders and or as having a character. No thought to the broader systems and structures at play or of, of all the subjects, citizens or individuals. The idea that the world runs by the same rules as the rules of polite society. Having met so many characters early on, I already feel intrigued to know what will happen to them. Yeah, that's a good point. There is a real tie-in between the the military, which is sort of the government at that point, because if you think of it like emperors back then, you know, Napoleon himself or Emperor Alexander for Russia, you know, they'll show up on battlefields. They'll be part of the military. Um, and... The military is one of the, sort of the two careers that someone in, in the aristocracy can take up outside of sort of managing an estate. Um, it says in this chapter, it introduces Pierre as sort of having gotten back from his education abroad and he hasn't decided what he wants to do with his life yet. He hasn't chosen if he's going to enter the military or into civil service, meaning you're sort of working for the government and those are really the only two options for a career he has, and he's trying to figure out which, you know, what, where exactly he wants to be placed. You know, both of those options are big and broad options. You know, the military has many different parts of it that you could be, that you could be, and same with civil service. But um, that's kind of like a running theme for Pierre. Is it's almost like he's coming of age. I mean, he's a grown up. He's an adult, but. He's trying to decide what to do with his life and what's going to make him happy, I suppose. And and that's sort of something that Pierre grapples with a lot throughout almost the whole book. I can't remember exactly, but um, yeah, it's all sort of like thematic of him. Um, Totoboss says, I love how the character of Pierre is introduced. He's like a bull in a china shop. He's physically larger than the other guests, but also occupying a large space in Anna's mind because of his unfamiliarity with Petersburg High Society. Uh, the description of pregnant Lisa Bolkonsky is also delightful. While she is initially described as the most seductive woman in Petersburg, Tolstoy goes on to say that she has barely visible moustache. Yeah, I guess they weren't bothered by a bit of a moustache. And hey, good on them. A little bit of fuzz on the lip. I loved the description of Anna Pavlovna being a host as they're going over a spinning mill. 
having put his workers into place, strolls about the establishment, watching out for the idle spinner or one of odd squealing much too loudly and hastens to go and slow it down or start it up at the proper speed. And she keeps it running like a well-oiled machine. That's a really good description. Lemongello CA says, I was intrigued by this line on his way to the auntie bowed to the little princess with a pleasant smile as to the intimate acquaintance. I wonder if this plays into the story later. Yeah. Um, I think it's quite clear from there that he recognizes her at least. And we'll know more about that soon. Warren Kovoffi says, from all the empty talk, flattery and gesturing, I, it seems like this whole arrangement is more of a way for, Aunt, uh, for Anna to show off who she knows. Like her acquaintances with these people is just a fashion statement. Yeah, you're not far off. It's kind of is a bit like that, isn't it? Like she's just trying to be involved. Um, let's keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. A lot of comments here, as usual. We've got over 80 comments, I think, today. I love Pierre so much, says Rona. He's a giant nerd with the confusion of a sloth plucked from a tree. <laughs> yeah. She fears Pierre as he is in open rebellion to the ideas of the um, the grandness of it all. Yeah. She knows that he's... Uh, I think she might even know that, like, you know, he's been abroad and he's come back with some sort of, you know, different ideas from the what the sort of traditional Russian uh, idea would be. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. She's like a, he's like a free thinker. <laughs> Fruit jelly gummy bear, yum, says, I think Pierre immediately comes off as likable to us because he does not participate in the tedious performative games of high society, but it's easy to conflate his misunderstanding of these expectations with outright rejection of them. Pierre is actually very childish and immature here, and it's going to get him in trouble. Brett Peterson says, thank you for doing your translation. I loved it. I listened to the first half of the podcast and then paused it and read my Maud, and then I listened to yours for comprehension. Well, thanks very much. Ship Peace says, any chance you could post the text again? It really helps my understanding to compare your Aussie version to my Maud translation. I like listening along, but it's a bit more confusing to follow in my version, if that makes sense. Um, you ask, Are you asking to post the text of my version or the or link to the Maud version? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to read my version, um, in the podcast and the text of my one, I think the easiest way to get it, because I don't want to post every chapter on here, um, which I think is pretty understandable. I'm happy to read them on the podcast, but I don't want it to be able to be just sort of pulled offline. So you can get the ebook for, I think, 99 cents on Amazon. Um, I think if you subscribe to the Patreon, you get access to the chapters as well. I have to double check that, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. But yeah, there's ways for you to read them. Gornado says, I really like the description of Anna's aunt as this presence that everyone needed to pay homage to, but nobody really wanted to be stuck talking to. Lisa seems like a charming character, pregnant, young, beautiful, and graceful. What kind of work was she carrying around in her bag? I was picturing a needlepoint project that she planned to work on since the party was supposed to be a small gathering, but I could be way off base. Um, I remember this from previous years, and it is a needlework thing. And I can't remember how we came to that conclusion, but um, maybe I think one of the other translations had it written like that, or I think it might have even been like the French translation of the book, mentioned that it was like a sewing kit or something like that um 
And yeah, so apparently that's what it is. And I know that because I ended up going with that in my version. Um, in the Andalus Aussie slang translation, I, I just straight up called it, a you know, um, you know, her sewing things or something like that. Samantha Carew, Samantha Crew says, I feel like P- Pierre is a contrarian. He enjoys getting a reaction. Yeah, I think he likes the discourse, you know, he likes to um, get a, get into a heated political conversation because he's learned all these clever things abroad and he's just, you know, he's young and he's eager to sort of have a clever conversation. Rusty Frank says, I'm unsure if Pierre is utterly inept and just so enlightened that he refuses to acknowledge the social cues around him as a power move. Either way, it should be fun to see where the character goes. Uh, I really love the tone of this being set at a soiree. Anna was introduced each house guest to the aunt and backing them into the monotonous conversation. I had flashbacks to many Christmas Eve celebrations. <laughs> uh, Snoozy. Awesome name. Snoozy. Pierre's an interesting fellow at first. Anna makes him out to be kind of a social dummy. Um, then he was like a child in a toy shop. Did not know which way to look. He's a stocky, overconfident posture. He hasn't learned etiquette. And even what he says makes him seem kind of stuck up, but turns out he's actually really excited and nervous to be there. Yeah, it's a pretty good analogy. He's kind of like wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. He's, he's, um, yeah, I don't know. He's naive and excitable. Um, and he can come across as a bit sort of obnoxious, but I don't think he's that way intentionally. I think he's just naive. Oh, all right, what else? There's a lot of comments sort of uh, doubling up. I might skip some comments tonight because um, well, there's about 80 comments, so I can't read them all. The podcast will go forever. Um, Our Treat says, It's hard to say exactly why Anna is so nervous about Pierre since I've never read this book. In this chapter, we see that Pierre... That's good that you haven't read it because otherwise you'd straight up just be spoiling it if you told us why. Uh, we see that Pierre comes off as a bit bumbling, so maybe she doesn't want him to hang around and bringing down the tone of her party. She does seem to take her party pretty seriously on high alert for things that need tending, but I feel like maybe there's more to it than that. She seemed a little more than just mildly annoyed that he showed up. Pierre, my boy, says Acoustic Heels. Love his entrance. You're right, he's an absolute unit if ever there was one. Pierre's the best. He is just the best. Uh, Intrepid Swordfish said, recently I watched the BBC adaption, adap, ad, ad, adaptation of War and Peace. Paul Dano plays Pierre, and judging by this chapter, he acted Pierre perfectly, capturing this non-socialized young man. I'm really excited to see how the book plays out, as I really enjoyed the series, so I can't wait to get stuck into some source material. The series does a really good job. It's The series is so good that you know they've cut out heaps, but... On reflection, you can't remember which bits they've cut out. They've done such a good job of it. Also, Andrew Lewis, that's me, I'm really enjoying, I'm really liking, sorry, your reading of your translation. It helps make sure that I'm understanding the classical text, which isn't always accessible. Thank you very much. Fumbling Bear. 
Welcome, Fumbling Bear. I don't think I've read that username before. My favorite line in this chapter is Pierre's fear of missing out on the conversation others was having. He kept fearing to miss intelligent conversations that he might have listened to. Looking at the self-assured and elegant expressions on the faces gathered there, he kept expecting something especially intelligent. Sunshine Cat. It's funny when Tolstoy points out the ridiculousness of being polite. For example, no one wants to talk to Anna's aunt, and my thought was that Anna was only using her aunt to divert people she did not want to talk to. Interesting little tactic. Um, Alright, keep moving, keep moving. Potato Cat says they're loving the book so far. Awesome. I'm going to skip your comment just because I'm scrolling through quickly. Um, Ship Peace has written a big comment. Uh, and I'm going to also skip that. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say the, the comments I'm skipping. It's not anything to do with the quality of your comments, by the way. I'm just um, uh, skimming through because there's so many. Trilingual Fangirl says, That last line of Pierre trying to hijack the conversation because he thinks he knows everything reminds me of the line, why do you assume you're the smartest in the room? Soon that attitude may be your doom. From the musical Hamilton. Ha ha. It might be too early to tell, but Pierre strikes me as an ambitious and intelligent, yet young and naive. Kind of similar to the young revolutionaries of Les Mis. Alright. Beautiful. Beautiful, guys. I think we've picked that apart as far as we can. Awesome conversation. Sorry I didn't get all the comments into the podcast, but, um, you know, you know how it is. I endeavor to read as many as I can, but at a certain point it feels like they're kind of all touching on the same subject. That's mostly because of the discussion prompts, I suppose. But um, All right, here we go. Oh, by the way... I think you probably mostly already know this, but I will say this. The discussion forum is open for any conversation about the the chapter or the book or whatever, really, um, that you want. So you don't have to just answer the discussion prompts. You know, you can just kind of... Those are just to prompt some conversation to get the ball rolling. But if you've got any questions or any part of the chapter didn't make sense or, or whatever, or you might know a little tidbit of information a little um, factoid that you can share with the group you know you don't have to just answer the prompts you can just talk about it in general you probably know that but yeah just thought i'd reiterate all right i'm going to read you chapter three from my translation are you ready good let's go chapter three anna pavlovna's shindig was off its bloody rocker by now with groups of conversations humming along like a well-tuned falcon. The party had split into three groups, or four if you counted Anna's aunt, whose group consisted of herself and one other old codger sitting together, looking out of place among the glitzy, posh wankers. One lot was the older blokes, and they were having a yarn with the abbot. Another group was the young fellas, pretty much a bunch of toey lairs, swarming around Helena and Princess Balkanskaya, who was about as chunky as a rissole, being knocked up and all. The third group was gathered around Mortimart and Anna. The Viscount was a decent-looking young fellow with soft features and good polished manners, who evidently considered himself a pretty big deal, but out of modesty placed himself at the disposal of the circle he found himself in. Anna Pavlovna was obviously serving him up to her guests as a delicious little treat. 
just as a clever maitre d'hotel hotel will take a shonky bit of meat, something that you'd never dare to eat if you saw it sitting around the kitchen, and serve it up as if it were a morsel of gourmet cuisine, so too did Anna Pavlovna serve up first the Viscount and then the abbot to her guests. The group around Mortemart immediately began gossiping about the murder of the Duke de Enhein. The Viscount said that the Duke de Enhein had gotten himself killed by his own magnanimity, and that Bonaparte hadn't just hated him for no reason. Oh yeah, tell us about it, Viscount, said Anna Pavlovna, with a smug feeling that her words had had a certain Louis XV ring to them. Comtes nous cela vicomte. The Viscount smiled and gave a bow to show his willingness to comply. Anna Pavlovna got all excited and arranged a group around him, gathering everyone up to listen to his tale. The Viscount knew the Duke personally, she whispered to one guest. The Viscount tells a hell of a story. You'll love this, she said to another. He's clearly a big deal, this Viscount. So important, she said to a third. And the Viscount was served up to her guests like well-garnished joint of roast beef on a silver platter. The Viscount gave a little smile to show he was ready to start his story. Oi, come here, Helena, sweetie, said Anna Pavlovna to the beautiful young princess who was sitting a little way away at the centre of another group. Helena smiled. She stood up with the same unchanging smile she'd worn when she first entered the room, the smile of a bloody gorgeous woman. With a slight rustle of her white dress trimmed with moss and ivy, with a gleam of her white shoulders, glossy hair and glitzy diamonds, she passed between the men who moved aside for her. She didn't look at any of them, but rather smiled on all of them, as if allowing them the privilege of admiring her stunning figure and shapely shoulders, back and boobies, which in the fashion of these days were very much exposed. She seemed to bring the glamour of a ballroom with her as she moved towards Anna Pavlovna. Helena was so lovely that not only did she not show any trace of sluttiness, despite being so sexy, but on the contrary she appeared shy about her good looks. It seemed that, if anything, she'd prefer to tone down her good looks if only she could figure out how. Oh, fuck me, said everyone who saw her, and the Viscount lifted his shoulders and dropped his eyes as if caught off guard by something unexpected when she approached and took her seat opposite him, beaming at him with her unchanging smile. Madam, now I'm second-guessing myself with such a crowd, he said with a smile, raising his head. The princess rested her bare, round arm on a little table thingy that was beside her, and figuring a response was not necessary, she held her smile instead. For the duration of the story, she sat, upright, glancing now at her beautiful arm, squished by its position against the little table thingy, and now at her even more beautiful boobies, readjusting a diamond necklace that dangled between them. Every once in a while, she smoothed out her dress, and whenever the story produced an effect... She looked to Anna Pavlovna, observed her reaction, mimicked it, and then resumed her default smile. The little princess, the pregnant one, had also left the tea table and followed Helena. Wait a sec, I'll grab my work. Hey, what are you doing? She went on, turning to Prince Ippolit. Can you grab me my work bag? There was a general movement as the princess, smiling and chit-chatting, 
happily to everyone at once, sat down and arranged herself in her seat. All right, I'm comfy now, she said. And asking the vice count to start the story, she took out her sewing things and recommenced her work. Prince Ippolit, having brought her the work bag, pulled a chair over and sat beside her in the circle. La Chaman Ippolit was weird to look at, because he looked heaps like his sister, the beautiful Helena, but somehow at the same time he was ugly as sin. He had basically the same face as she, but on him it looked like a dog's breakfast. On Helena the face was lit up by a joyous, self-satisfied youthful smile, and situated above a gorgeous feminine figure, but on Ippolit the face hung all dopey and slack, with a constant expression of dumb self-confidence atop his scrawny, piss-weak body. His eyes, nose and mouth, often referred to as his face, was puckered into a vacant, dick-headed grimace, and his arms and legs always looked stupid, hanging awkwardly in unnatural positions. He was a total dipshit. Oh, it's not going to be a fucking ghost story, is it? said he, sitting down beside the princess and hastily adjusting his lorgnette, as if he wouldn't be able to speak without it. Uh, nah, all good, mate. No ghosts in this one, said the astonished narrator, shrugging his shoulders. Oh, cause I fucking hate ghost stories, eh? said Prince Ippolit, in a tone that suggested that he only understood what he was saying after he said it. He spoke with such self-confidence that those who heard him could not figure out if he was extremely witty or a total spaz. He was dressed in a dark green dress coat, knee breeches of the colour of Crucy de Nymph Effray, which is the thigh of a frightened nymph, as he called it, shoes and stockings. The Viscount did a good job telling his tale. It was an anecdote, current gossip at the time, the gist of which being that the Duke d'Enhein had secretly gone to Paris to visit Mademoiselle George, and that while at her house, he happened to run into none other than his rival, Napoleon, who enjoyed the company of the famous actress, too. While they were there, Napoleon had one of his fainting fits to which he was subject, and was therefore at the mercy of the Duke d'Enhein. The Duke spared his life, and for this good deed, this magnanimous deed, Napoleon rewarded him with death. The story was colourful and interesting, especially the bit where the rivals suddenly recognised each other and the ladies looked agitated. How good's that? said Anna Pavlovna with an inquiring glance at the little princess. How good's that? whispered the little princess in response, stabbing her sewing needle into her work, as if to suggest that the story was far too interesting for her to continue working. The Viscount appreciated this praise and, smiling gratefully, prepared to keep going with the story, but just then Anna Pavlovna, who was still keeping an anxious eye on the young man who concerned her, noticed that he was talking too, too loudly and heatedly with the abbot. So she rushed toward them to sort it out. Pierre had managed to strike up a conversation with the abbot about the balance of power, and the latter, evidently interested by the simple-minded young man's keenness, was explaining his pet theory. They were conversing too eagerly and naturally for her liking, almost as if it were a genuine conversation, and Anna Pavlovna would have none of that. The means are the balance of power in Europe and the rights of the people, the abbot was saying. All it would take to save the world is for one powerful nation like Russia, barbaric as she is said to be, to place herself disinterestedly at the head of an alliance tasked 
with maintaining the balance of power in Europe. But how are you going to get that balance, Pierre was beginning. At that moment, Anna Pavlovna swooped in, shot Pierre a very bitchy look, and then asked the abbot sweetly how he was coping with the Russian climate. The Italian's face instantly changed and assumed an offensively affected sugary expression, expression he reserved for when he spoke with women. I've just been so caught up mind I've just been so caught up enjoying the wit and culture of the society, especially the feminine society, that I've barely even noticed the climate, said he. I'm just happy to be here. Anna Pavlovna would not let the abbot and Pierre escape that easily, and so in order to keep an even closer eye on them, she dragged them over to the larger circle. Alright, there you go, there's chapter three for you little introduction to uh, Ippolit, was it? Was it Ippolit? Yeah. <laughs> I forgot that I did that. But I made Ippolit just a massive bogan. <laughs> like, like a station rat, as we'd call them. They're the kind of like druggies who hang out at train stations. Like the most bogan of all bogans. I made Ippolit one of them. Oh, <laughs> uh, golly. The things I do to entertain myself. I'm a very silly man. All right, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.